Yeah, I'll come over, just not right now. Yeah, because I'm about to tune into Tanae's talks. Because unlike what you be talking about, if Tanae's talking about it, it must be worth being talked about. Talks right here, we gon' talk about it right here. We gon' talk about everything you like. I'ma make it real, real clear. It's today talks right here. We gon' talk about it right here. I'ma talk about everything you like. I'ma make it real, real clear. Cause it's today talks. And I'ma talk about it. Yeah, cause it's today talks. And I'ma talk about it. And welcome to this special episode of the Tanae Talks podcast. Remember, if Tanae talks, you listen. And today's episode is about colorism and colorism, how it affects black women, how it affects the black community. And I have a special guest, Dr. Donna Oriowo. She is a certified sex therapist who has done intensive research on how colorism and texturism play a role in a black woman's mental and sexual health. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Donna Oriowo. Welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being I'm so a guest. <laughs> I'm so excited <laughs> to have you. You're like kindred spirits. Um, so I, I told my guests a little bit about you being a certified sex therapist. Can you let uh, my listeners know what got you into the business of sexual therapy and why, how did you uh, find or come to the conclusion of how colorism affects black women's um, sexual and mental health? Okay. Well, I got into sex therapy because everybody kept telling me their business. <laughs> That'll, so. do <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. But I've had a general comfort, and I was just like, you know what? Let me get let me get a little bit more research. Let me do a little bit more work so that I can give better advice to my friends, mm-hmm. and maybe I could get paid at the same time because you know, advice giving ain't free. You listen to someone's story for an hour, Hello. and you give them back your feedback, and it's like, oh, I'm tired. Okay. I owe my best friend about ten million dollars. She's a counselor and I be getting free stuff, so I understand. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that sort of moved me into talking about colorism and texturism specifically, um, it actually came in like this super roundabout way. When I was first studying um psychology, um, I went to the Morgan State University for undergrad. Hey. And um Hey, so uh, I started off with like how IQ and body size impact um, impact sexuality, mm-hmm. but um, I just sort of something about the research things off. Yeah, and what I realized is that if you don't put black in, then you won't get black stuff out. You get white people are almost like the standard. So yes. if you don't put in that you're looking about African-American or black, then you don't get that information. And then when you do put it in, you get different information. 
And at that time, I was also going through my own um, natural hair journey. Don't we all? So I really wanted to know about <laughs> hair. Yes. <laughs> about what year was this? I to know about, about, about what? Um, this was between 2008 to 2000. Oh my gosh! Okay, we'll get we'll we'll circle back to that. Yeah, okay, I yes. Twenty twenty. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's all good because I was going through that too. In two thousand nine was the first time I ever did the big chop, and back then it wasn't like it is now. Like there wasn't a lot of hair products. There weren't any YouTubers, you know, doing it like they do now. So I understand. We're, we're yeah, kindred spirits. <laughs> Different days, different yeah. days. Now everybody's on YouTube. You can find anybody. Even me. <laughs> subscribe, like today. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so that but was yeah, around that I mean, time. That's where I started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what happened was, so Doctor Oreo and I, I'll say Doctor Donna, because okay. I have a hard time pronouncing O's and W's. So we're just gonna say Doctor Donna. <laughs> she and I are both subscribed to this blackity black um I guess you want to call it a blog or community we're part of this blackity black on black community called Kinfolk Collective so shout out to KK and KK was having a thread about colorism and this is what Dr. Donna wrote that made me realize that she was the perfect guest for my show on colorism that will premiere on February 4th when you're listening to this tune in it will have premiered on February 4th and I wanted to highlight this in uh, Black History Month because colorism texturism and all of the isms affect us and our black history it's a part of the social fabric of our black history and dr donna wrote this conversations about colorism also need to include texturism that's our hair right with the good hair and the bad hair we call Mm -hmm. she wrote we will call some folk light simply because of their hair texture of loam thinking back to the documentary light girls which followed uh which followed dark girls as well Uh, which was a documentary that Oprah Winfrey did a few years ago. So if you haven't, my listeners, check out the documentary Light Girls and Dark Girls. Conversations about colorism and texturism tend to be more uh, uh, her more area focus in therapy. She says she's a sex therapist, but we talk about colorism, texturism and the impact it has on sexual and mental health. So the original question that KK wrote was, so I think we got to start having more layered conversations about colorism. Would you also agree, Dr. Donna? I definitely agree. (laughs) We scared. We are scared. We scared to have a conversation. Because we don't want to offend. And uh, KK goes on to say, we know all about, she says, we know not all dark skin is created equally. I definitely agree with that. And we'll talk about that later. Um, Someone like Lupita, um, who is dark, but with features that are acceptable, is not going to experience colorism in the same way as a woman of her complexion who has a wide, flat nose or super thick lips. Also, we know that there is a dark uh, that dark is still acceptable and I mean acceptable to larger society like Remy Ma. There's a dark skin that is always denigrated like a Gabby Sidibe. Um, So, wow, that that's loaded. What do you think about those thoughts? Because I agree with her that even dark skin is put on a spectrum of what is considered cute and what is considered ain't cute. It really is. And 
I, I think that the for me, like to me, Lupita definitely looks like you know she she reminds me of some of my aunties and mm-hmm. all that. So that piece for me, you know, there's a familiarity in looking at her. Like the nose looks familiar, the lips look familiar. Mm-hmm. These you know these features that she has, they look familiar. I think that what we're forgetting is that when we have a little bit more background, we mm-hmm. also use that background, whether consciously or subconsciously. And what we know about Lupita is that she speaks other languages. Mm-hmm. What we know is that she was not born in America. Mm-hmm. And we, we know that, you know, she was born in what, Mexico. Um, she's, she's Kenyan, but she was born in Mexico. She, she speaks Spanish. She speaks all these other languages. And we also forget accentism is a thing. Ooh. If she had a Kenyan accent, Yes. People might still feel differently about her. She might be not as cute, but she has a Eurocentric sort of accent, which adds to her allure because there's a constant leaning toward Eurocentric standards of oh. beauty and acceptability. So that part is playing in there, too. Oh, my God. You just. uh Oh, I got to. I had to sound the horns. <laughs> I had to sound the horns because you just opened a whole nother door to this conversation about accentism with the isms, right? Because you're yes, right. All when these isms, they come into play. They come into play because whenever you're closer to whiteness, whether it is in skin tone or, or behavior, right? So you and I, we speak, I would consider the, the, the king's good English, right? So someone would may say, oh, y'all talk white instead of saying you just talk, uh, you speak well or whatever the case. Or they associate speaking well to whiteness. So then we mm-hmm. may be a little bit more acceptable than somebody that's like, okay, ew, get it, girl, you know. Um, and the accentism plays a role. I remember during the Trayvon Martin case case and his best friend Mm -hmm. who testified on his behalf she didn't speak so well so she was crucified in the media because she was a a dark skin I like to say regular black girl right Lupita's not regular black girl but this regular African-American girl who had a particular accent was crucified and considered less credible um, because of her accent so you you brought in a whole nother piece and I thank you for for sharing that wow I'm mind blown oh no problem <laughs> you know I gotta bring it all gotta bring it all that's why you bring the experts Can't come in butt over here. okay that's why you bring the experts <laughs> in she's a doctor okay she's a doctor okay so I end and up- honestly this is that work that I do like all the time mm-hmm. so when I I travel a lot to speak and people bring me in to talk about black female sexuality and I end up talking, I tell them about colorism and sexualism all the time. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about it because it plays into mental health. It plays into sexual health. And if we're not having a conversation about it, I don't know what we're talking about. Come on. We're past the collection plate. Put your, we're going to put your cash app up so people can donate. <laughs> okay. Cause this is when you pass the collection plate around for this good word that she is dropping on us. So Dr. Donna, we oh oh my god I'm all over now I had like I had my stuff together listeners I got my questions right here but Dr. Donna did just sent me down a whole nother path uh, <laughs> and we'll get to it but I want you guys to understand the context of colorism itself colorism comes from uh, racism and oppression 
And I want you guys yep. to understand that we are we are having this fight within our culture with one another because it is a, a bigger umbrella. It's under a bigger umbrella of racism. And this earlier this morning, I was talking to my boyfriend about it because I wanted to make sure that this conversation didn't turn into a dark skin versus light skin. I didn't want it to turn mm-hmm. into a. Uh, two dark-skinned women airing our grievances as if it is at the fault of our lighter-skinned uh, brothers and sisters. I did not want that. And we started talking. I can about, that. You know what I mean? I didn't want it to be that. And we started talking about in the greater context of slavery where the lighter slaves were in the home and the darker slaves were in the field you know understanding that these lighter kids were masses child bastard children that he didn't really want to claim but in the grand scheme of things although the dark skin the light skin may have gotten a little bit of privilege at the end of the day they were both slaves <laughs> you know and so while we yeah. while we bicker and while we are angered with each other and we go back and forth at the end of the day both parties are affected by this racism that trickles down and has has birthed have given birth to colorism yeah and i would even go as far as to say like I always like to emphasize what the what the definition of colorism is because I think that we get it mi- mixed up, right? Mm-hmm. With people just being mean. Yes. And I'm going to stress it when I read it now. It's the hierarchical system in place in which light skin is privileged over dark skin. Mm-hmm. And I feel the need to say it because what I'm going to say next is usually not widely accepted. People come to me and I understand because it hurts. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It so does. there is no such thing as reverse racism and there is no such thing as reverse colorism. It goes in one direction only. Mm. Say it Light one more time. People do not experience <laughs> colorism. Mm-hmm. They experience prejudice mm. within group prejudice based on their skin tone. Dark skinned people experience colorism. If you are darker than that brown paper bag because that was the unit of measurement, mm-hmm. you are considered darker skin. Yes. And as you are considered darker skin, there are systems in place, not just individual to individual, but systems in place that will favor people that are lighter skin and punish people that are darker skin. And I want that part to be emphasized. And I, I do emphasize it because I think that oftentimes we get into these conversations where lighter skinned people's feelings are centered mm-hmm. much in the same way that we center white people's feelings when we're having conversations about racism. Yes, yes it hurts because everyone wants to be like, but I don't live like this, mm-hmm. but you benefit from it. Absolutely. And you're benefiting from it. doesn't make you a bad person. It means that your eyes have to be open. I'm a, thin woman mm-hmm. generally speaking I am considered to be a thin woman and as a person that is a thin woman that means that I don't experience sizeism in this country mm-hmm. it means I benefit from it I am I am privileged to have a certain body type in this country which means that we also have to talk about the fact that light skinned black people yes we all black so we all get the racism That's absolutely but we all don't get colorism that's correct I'm so glad that you put that into perspective because um, as I was preparing for this show, 
I did a Facebook thread where I asked the question, what type of colorism have you experienced? And within that question, a lot of the darker skin respondents had, to me, sadness associated with their experience. They said things, Mm -hmm. uh, one young lady commented that because she was dark, her grandmother recognized that she would be treated a certain way at school. So to combat being talked about for her dark color, although she was a nice looking girl, her grandmother kept her in the latest Jordans, the latest, um, you know, outfit at the time back in our day, you know, like the Tommy Hilfiger, the Nautica Uh, and back in my, um, where I grew up, we would call that we would call that geared, right? To dress well, you'd be considered geared. So basically, her grandmother kept her geared to combat her being talked about for her skin color, to say, well, at least at least you're dressed nice, right? Um, a lot we of overcompensate in the other areas. Yes, for the where for the places that we feel that we have fallen short. Yes, and so and then the lighter skinned people, I their experiences were more so. Well, this guy said that he don't usually date black women, but because I'm light, he would give me a chance. Or they would say things like, "Well, because I'm light, people tend to think that I think that I'm all that." And I kind of wrestled a little bit with their responses because I felt like the dark skinned people had true uh, pain, tears associated with their experience on the colorism spectrum. And I don't want to judge, but I just felt like the, the, on the other end, on the lighter end, I, I maybe because I'm not light, I didn't feel like that was anything to be sad, saddened about. How, Mm. how do you, when someone comes to you for therapy, how would you respond to what I'm saying to you from a therapist's point of view? Therapeutically, pain is pain. Mm-hmm. And what I try to get people to do is remove themselves from comparing their pain to somebody else. Mm. It's not the pain Olympics. Yes. It's not the colorism Olympics. It's not the oppression Olympics. It's not to see who's, who's more oppressed than everybody else. Mm-hmm. We already know that there is a hierarchy to oppression, period. But pain, pain is personal. And how you, how you experience what, how people come at you that's, that's how you have to deal with that ultimately and in the end of the day. But that doesn't mean that we don't all have a responsibility to also recognize where we're privileged. Mm-hmm. So when um, lighter skinned folk are in the, you know, they're in the space and they're talking about their pain, I do gently remind them that it's not colorism that they're experiencing, that it is race-based prejudices and that people consider them to be better or to be a trophy of some sort. And so they're prized. They become a prize and they stop feeling like a person. And that hurts. Yeah. And that's painful. And they have a right to talk about and explore that and to know that it is not okay for people to not treat them as a person, but to treat them as an object that they should acquire. Wow. When dark-skinned women are in the space, I also have to admit the conversations are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're talking about people not wanting them at all or feeling like they've done them a favor by yes. dating them because, oh. yo, I don't normally date dark skin Johns, but you know, oh my you gosh. caught my eye. <laughs> that- You're special. <laughs> yeah. So I'm doing you the favor of dating you. And 
I, I don't think, I think that sometimes we get lost in the sauce of our own stuff mm-hmm. that we don't want to recognize that someone is feeling pain too. Yes. And, and how they're experiencing the world around them. So we, we're just like, oh, your pain don't really matter or their pain doesn't really matter. And I'm like, no, all pain matters. But we also have to remember that when I talk about colorism, when I talk about texturism, mm-hmm. I'm also talking about systems in place. Yes. Because, and I, I said this before and I'll say it forever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> um, if two black people are going in for the same job and one of them is light-skinned and one of them is dark-skinned, the light-skinned person is more likely to get the job than the dark-skinned person, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. Research will tell you that all day. Now, if they had two jobs, the light-skinned person is more likely to get paid more mm-hmm. and to be seen as being more capable. So they're more likely to be trusted the second they get the job than someone that is darker-skinned. Yes. If it comes time to fire somebody, the dark-skinned person is more likely to eat it than the... Um, than the light-skinned person. Mm-hmm. In the criminal justice system, the dark-skinned person is more likely to get more time. Absolutely. They're more likely to be convicted of the crime, first of all, whether or not they have enough evidence, but then they're also more likely to get more time. I'm like, we have to remember that there are systems in play. Yes. Not just personal grievances, but systems. And when we're talking about any ism like that, when we're talking about racism, colorism, texturism, there are multiple levels to look at it on. So there's the micro, mezzo, and the macro level. And we have to remember that. Yes, come the on. The mezzo and the macro level, Teach we're us. talking about systems at play. We're not talking about <laughs> what what my what my sister said to me yes. yesterday. Mm-hmm. That in itself, yes, that is colorism of one sort. Yes. But then we also have to think that how does... How does colorism come into play in your place of work? Mm-hmm. How does colorism come into play in our political environment? We have to remember that there's levels to this. There there are. I, I like how you talked about this isn't the pain Olympics. And I also, like you said, we have to look at the systems and not just personal grievances. That hit on a personal level because, like you said, in the context of work, because I am a dark-skinned woman and I'm not fat, but I am thicker. I'm not thin. Anything I say or if I want to if I want to air a grievance, right, a real grievance, a a real situation, I am looked upon as aggressive. Those are the words that are used to describe me. Um, And aggressiveness to me, you know, means that violence is going to ensue. I'm not going to be violent with you because I'm airing a grievance and I'm not aggressive because I am pointing out a wrong but as a darker skinned person, that is how it's looked upon, especially among dark skinned men uh, and women. And yeah, you become the sapphire in that moment. Yes. Neck popping or neck rolling, finger popping, mm-hmm. attitude emasculating, angry black woman sort of trope. Yes. You stop being you and you start being this caricature that they have developed in their minds about who you are. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that. Light-skinned women don't also have a trope. They have the Jezebel. So they're looked at as these, you know, these fast women who are almost masculine because of their want for sex so much that, you know, they cannot be raped. Right. And, of course, no one's raping the mammy. She's she's fat. She's dark. Mm -hmm. She has nappy hair. Nobody wants to be with her. Her job is just to nurture and care for others including the white slave master's baby. <laughs> but right. the thing about these narratives and these tropes is that 
they are one dimensional. Yes, they forget yeah. to mention that the mammy was raised and that's how you are able to produce mixed race children. Right. The, the what they call mulattoes, quadroons, octoroons, et cetera, that they use as a buffer class between white people and dark and, and black people mm-hmm. or darker skinned black people. That's what they were used as. And that's what they continue to be used as today. Right In, in this day and age. And, and it's interesting that you talk about the Jezebel trope with lighter skinned women. Uh, I, uh, like I said, I've been preparing for this show for a few weeks. And I talked to my college roommate who is very fair skinned. And I asked her what experience with colorism that she has had and that's what she said for people to think that she's promiscuous just because she's light and I never knew that and I'm like well wow I I guess I wouldn't know that because I am I am experiencing life from the vantage point of a darker skinned woman and I thought that that was fascinating to say the least but also just not accurate you know all (laughs) lighter skinned women are not just promiscuous women waiting for you to swoop them up you know what I mean and and bang on them so Mm -hmm. wow that's fascinating it's funny because like the 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 expectations through um you know, like this idea of the male gaze and what, what men want from women or what masculine people want from feminine people mm-hmm. is it, it has this piece of, oh, well, you can wife a light skinned woman that has had her Jezebel days, but um, a darker skinned person, you don't do that with. They're not marriage material. You're supposed to have sex with them and keep them moving. Yeah. It's, it's almost sick. And that too speaks to this idea of the value that they hold. Mm. that people hold based on their skin tone and their hair texture. So I was reading this article I came across. It's it's entitled Raising a Dark Skinned Girl to Love Her Skin. And I'm going to read an expert from it, which will lead into my question. I read that before. Did you? Okay, this is awesome. So (laughs) (laughs) it says, um, growing up, I viewed different women of all shades at a young age. I was taught we are all beautiful. I didn't see any problem with my skin or hair until I was in elementary school. I remembered being in the second grade and my teacher rearranged our seats in groups of eights. It wasn't until a classmate of mine said, this is the ugly table. That's the one I was at. And the other one was the pretty table. Me confused at the age of eight evaluated what classified us as ugly. And the other table as pretty. We had the same clothes and shoes because we were technically in uniform. It wasn't our body shapes because we all were the same size. No one had hit puberty yet. It wasn't by level of intelligence because the top student in our class was sitting at my table. The only evidence I gather was by our skin tones. Mind you, we were all black students, so it wasn't whites versus black, or as my mother taught me to say, Caucasians versus African Americans. It was the lightest skin versus dark skin. So I asked Dr. Donna, at what age did you recognize that you had been placed on the color spectrum? Elementary school. And what happened? I had this very vivid memory of being in the back of my parents' car, scratching up my legs, making myself ashy. (laughs) Because there was a desire at that moment to be something other than dark like I was. Mm. I wanted to be white or to be light. And I was scratching my legs up systematically in the car to make it happen. I remember this. I don't remember what led to it exactly, 
But I know that I was elementary school age. Mm-hmm. I know that, you know, they call you things like African booty scratcher. Mm-hmm. I know, I remember, you know, people like, oh, if you black, get back. Mm-hmm. Brown stick around, you know, if you're light, you're all right. If you're, um, like, you know, that little nursery rhyme. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember some of these things. I remember like, oh, you doo-doo brown. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to be the. No one wants to be doo-doo brown. No one wants to be poop. Period. That's that's basically saying you <laughs> no. ain't shit. And don't nobody want to be exactly. a- ain't shit. <laughs> period. Right. And I'm just like, I just know that it was definitely elementary school. Mm-hmm. The ones that were considered pretty were often mixed race. Were often light skin. Mm-hmm. And you know, regular black wouldn't do. Yeah. And dark skin black was unacceptable. Um, Nobody wanted to admit that they liked you. That is and very honestly, true. Honestly, I think that sometimes we get in, we get stuck in the romantic relationship phase of it, mm-hmm. like whether or not you know um, if you're looking for you're looking for some some sort of boost thing to be <laughs> all up on you, yeah. whether or not they like you in that way. But it also impacts your ability to get friends mm-hmm. because people also want pretty friends. They do. And then that I think that's and how cl- the, the cliques are fo- are formed um, mm-hmm. of of social groups. You're socialized into right this pretty versus not pretty, dark versus light. You know these different groups. And I too um, experienced the I f- learned of the color spectrum in elementary as well. I was in the fourth grade, and I tell this story often. My boyfriend's like, "That must have really bothered you," and and it did. You know, things that happen in our childhood affect us all the way up until our adulthood when they're not resolved or when you constantly see the same thing happening. And for me, I was in the fourth grade and this guy that went to my elementary school, but he lived around a corner from me, came to my house, you know, outside. And I think we were about to go bike riding. And before we went to go bike riding, I guess he, he liked me, but he couldn't fully like me. And he tells me, I mean, you cute, but you're not as cute as your cousin. And my cousin was light skinned. So he would just basically declare, like, you are right, but you're not better than her. And that just stuck with me because I'm like, well, what's wrong with me? I'm clean. I'm, you know, I'm thinking. And that kind of shaped my lens, as you could, as you would say, in the, in comparison um, with, you know, lighter skinned girls. I never thought bad of them. I know a lot of light skinned girls will say, well, light skinned girls treated me bad, you know, and I'm, I I never did that. It was, it wasn't to me, it wasn't them. That was the issue. It was the guys. Right. And then, like mm-hmm. I said, when we're socialized, when I got to college, I, my freshman year, I went to an HBCU and colorism was so rampant on the campus. I started off at Dillard University that my biology teacher had to have a come to Jesus moment with us and was like, stop separating yourself by color. And I was fortunate Mm -hmm. because my friend group was a diverse group of girls. It was light, dark, short. And that's how I am in just my general life. I, my mom said, I have no respect of persons. Like, if you cool, you cool. You come, come off. And, but there were several <laughs> groups of people that was like, only the light skinned girls, only, you know, only the dark skinned girls. And it was like this tension brewing on campus where the biology professor <laughs> got involved in class, like, spent a whole class lecture to tell us that we are Africoids and that 
our counterparts, our caucasoids, which means they and oids in in biology means resembling of, which means we are resembling of Africa. We come from Africa, and basically we're all the same. So we need to quit separating ourselves. That was the, the grand scheme of things, and it was like, dang, why did that have to happen? But it's it's like an unspoken socialization, right? And we need to and the fix it. And, and like, it's done very well. It's very mm-hmm. insidious. Yeah, it, it's it's the stuff we see on TV where um, you know TV shows that we may have grown up on, like Martin, mm-hmm. and how Pam darker skin was constantly being dogged out. And talked about mm-hmm. being told that she's loud, unprofessional, oversexual. B her hair. And you, uh huh. And that you know Gina was the desirable, marriageable one, mm-hmm. um, seen as being smarter, more classy. So you, and the thing is, you have these tropes that sort of continue. Like who gets to get married? You see these movies where you know darker skinned people get punished in however ways they're going to be punished or they get to be the trusty sidekick <laughs> to a lighter skinned person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they play these secondary characters. You don't see them often centered as a love interest without stories just about pain and suffering and having to overcome, but just, you know, girl next door type stories. Mm-hmm. We don't see enough of those. So you start to associate blackness with a certain thing and darkness with a certain sort of thing. And you start to associate lightness with a certain sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how we talk about um, this history's country, um, the history with slavery and all that other stuff, that becomes another part of the conversation that gets silenced. We don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that more than anything, like, while I can respect that, you know, your teacher had that come to Jesus moment, what she did at the same time was dismiss people's pain. Yes. Saying like, oh, we're all we're all of the human race. That sounds like what white people say when they're like, oh, but I don't see color. Or when they say all lives matter. Like, who asked you not a word? I was like, who asked you not to see color? You can see my color. I'm asking you not to be racist. Yes. And the same thing goes within colorism. I you can see my color. I'm asking you not to be a colorist. Come on. That's all I'm asking you to do. Listen. I'm asking you to acknowledge that I am a whole individual, that I'm a whole person mm-hmm. and that you cannot know me based on my skin tone alone it's... now what i would say about that like <laughs> because i know that oftentimes we get into these conversations about um when we, when we talk about the what it was like when we were younger right mm-hmm. dark skin people are like oh you know this thing happened they give you a set of things that happen right and light skin people you often hear things like well they didn't like me because i was pretty <laughs> or, um, you know, they chased me down, they pulled my hair, they were mean and they were nasty to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that either of these stories are not valid, right? Correct. What I'm saying is that there's a message behind the message. Yes. And the message that I hear when I hear someone say, oh, they didn't like me because I was pretty. What I'm hearing is that you thought you were pretty. And this helped other people to identify you as someone who thought they were ugly that they had less value. You felt you had more value than people and you treated them as such. But the thing is, children don't get that in a bubble. Someone taught it to them. Yes. I'm glad so, that you, you talked about them being getting taught that. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I felt like you were about to say something. Oh. Else. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, it's all good. It's all good. I just, 
there's an intergenerational piece here. Mm -hmm. And what I often hear is everyone is talking from their own experiences and from their own pain. And I think that sometimes, you know, lighter skinned folks can sometimes forget that dark skinned people are talking from a from a trauma point mm-hmm. of being raised as though they're being less than as if they have to overcompensate for what they look like mm-hmm. because they are seen as not as smart and certainly not as cute and thus less worthy and less valuable human beings. Whereas lighter skin people are raised with a certain level of value. And you have a world that sort of confirms that, oh, you're better than this person because you are lighter skin Mm -hmm. and sometimes people just don't trust your agenda they don't trust where you are they don't trust what you're doing and it's it's a hard space to stand in and I think that's part of what sort of stymies the conversation Mm -hmm. because no one wants to feel like they are the oppressor of somebody else but I'm like Mm -hmm. you might be the representation of oppressive to someone else right and you have to recognize that that position demands work. Yes. That the same time that we ask white people to do their work, we also have light skinned people to have to do their work. Everybody has to be willing to do their work. Everyone has to be willing to take a look at their traumas and recognize where they come from mm-hmm. and recognize how those traumas impact how they interact with other people. None of this stuff is easy. All of it is hard. Yes. But we don't have the conversation because we want to have a kumbaya moment and say we all black. And so we experience <laughs> our blackness the same. And, and I'm just like, and we all don't. right, that's cute. <laughs> and, <laughs> and dark skinned people have to do the work as well to, to, I think conversations just need to be had because every person doesn't think every light skinned person doesn't think that a dark skinned person is ugly or less than. So we have, when you say we need to do the work, all the work needs to be done. And we just need to start talking to each other, getting to know each other and stop just making assumptions off rip. And then you talked about the intergenerational of things. And that one, that led me to my question to you about color and procreation and the conversations that are being had with younger people, because it seems like, so this article that I read is a woman saying how she's going to teach her dark skinned daughter to love her skin and it, and it also appears that when you do have dark skinned people who are uber confident and love their skin, you can't shake them. It seems like people go out of their way to tear them down or like, how dare she have the audacity or he have the audacity to think that they're the something. Uppity. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're uppity <laughs> or they'll, I've heard this like, oh, she acting light skinned. If you Ooh, don't take, yep, heard it. <laughs> you're acting light skin. If you don't take abuse, or if you don't, um, and I, and I was gonna say, how does that come to you in a therapeutic sense, where women are telling you when it comes to dating and sexuality that, um, for example, they'll say that dark skinned women text back faster, or that if a dark skinned woman doesn't text back, they expect that of her, and you know she's acting light skin. But if a black mm-hmm. woman isn't eager to jump out there and jump on you and be with you or whatever the case oh she's acting light-skinned i think that in itself has a kind of negative connotation towards the darker skin individual as well completely <laughs> because again we, we end up talking about these values come back again and what type of value you think that a person has so someone that you think is less worthy of you because you don't think that dark-skinned people are worthy of you you expect them to hop on it 
you expect <laughs> them to be ones who take more abuse, to, for you to be able to say what you want and do what you want, and that she's still going to be eager to be with you, but you're trifling behind. <laughs> okay. But that, oh, it's okay if a light-skinned person doesn't text me back because she got real value. Mm. So I understand that, you know, a bunch of people sweating her, so she got to vet all of us, but I'm going to still come out on top. And mm. I'm just like, there's an effort that is put in with certain people that are not put in with other people. And this is why I always talk about self-love. Because I'm just like, you got to love you first. Yes. And this will help you to teach other people how they get to treat you. Because right. if you love yourself on a level two, and someone loves you on a level 10, you're never going to feel all that love because you only got level two love for you. Ooh, but when somebody on. loves you on that same trifling level two, <laughs> and one day you level up to a level four or a level five, you realize that the love that you've been receiving is probably less than what you deserve. But I also talk about the fact that when you don't love yourself, you're more likely to be in abusive and substandard relationships, taking on crap that you need not take on. Power and control becomes a part of the narrative of that relationship. And that's not where we we want healthy relationships. We want black love that's cute. Come on, cute black love. Feels nice. Come on, black love that feels nice. Black love that's comfortable. We want black love that allows our authenticity to shine through. We want that Will and Jada love. Shining through. Come on. When you feel like your other person is is mean or nasty, or you have to constantly prove yourself worthy of being with them, like who is trying to do this work? Come on. <laughs> because they get to say nasty things to you and you have to constantly be the forgiver. You have to constantly like, like we're talking about the almost like an exchange of value of uh, value. Right. Mm-hmm. So women are supposed to have social value based on how they look based on a white supremacist, patriarchal society. So then we're looking at people like, all right, Oh, I want the, the most social value I can get for my capital. Mm-hmm. So for this monetary that I got, you got to look real cute. You need to be my trophy wife, mm-hmm. my trophy thing. This person that I get to show off and sit, show to others, look how well I've done. Mm-hmm. Look at what I was able to get. Look what I was able to pull in. And when, we, when we're having that type of conversation, we're also basically saying that like dark-skinned women don't really have value. Dark-skinned, fat, nappy women don't have value. That they're supposed to take what they can get and be happy for it. But guess and what? We ain't doing women that. Women can have options. And vet partners. And I'm just like, we ain't doing that. All of us are vet and boo boo. <laughs> so I want to shift the conversation to the whole texturism piece. And this is one mm-hmm. of the first introductions that I had with texturism. So that was an <laughs> expert from the movie School Days in the scene, uh, the wannabes versus the jigaboos. And if you look at the movie closely, there was a dark skin, some dark skinned girls on the wannabe side, but they had to have certain hair texture right to be considered a mm-hmm. you know a wannabe so with the boom in natural hair being more acceptable and mainstream cope 
culture and corporate spaces, we enter into the space of texturism. And Dr. Donna, you wrote a blog about the reactions surrounding the H&M marketing scheme that photographed a black girl with her hair in its natural state. Is it safe to stay, say that if she was lighter or with a different hair texture, would she have, uh, would she have triggered such a response? Uh, I think not. <laughs> I believe there were some lighter skinned um, girls in that same campaign that no one said nothing about. And all of them were supposed to have messy hair. Yeah. You know, the type of hair that children have. But when you dark skin, you have different set of expectations about how you have to work to present yourself in public spaces. So I was like, everybody's wrong on this. Yes. I, I think I, I think I, yes. I think I blamed everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were going in on that blog and I feel like people were triggered uh, and it triggered a response because the campaign was supposed to show kids having fun on the playground, you know, with with disheveled hair and, you know, kind of disheveled clothes or whatever. And I feel like it was so triggering for people when you heard responses like, and her parents are wrong and they should have known better and all of this stuff is because... It, it, it kind of stems from respectability, uh, uh, respectability politics, as in because black people are told if you look this way, if you act this way, if you talk this way, then you'll be treated better. So it was like, oh, how dare they have the nerve to let her go out looking like that? Because we ourselves, those same people have been talked about if our hair was out of place or if our edges wasn't right or it was a little nappy in the kitchen or whatever the case may be. We were treated the same way that this girl was being attacked or her parents were being attacked to say, how dare they let her look like that? And that's just how we look on a regular basis. So that is a, a, a an inner issue that we got on that we, like you said, we're not feeling good enough about ourselves. And once you love yourself, you would have looked at that little girl with a totally different gaze to say, oh, that just looked like my little cousin or that looked like my little niece. And if they would have understood the context of the campaign, like you said, there were... They wouldn't have done that. They were... <laughs> there were I don't know if they would have, would have or not done it, but they would have understood it in a more, uh, better context of are they trying to play us again when there were there were lighter girls with different hair texture with the disheveled look and uh, little white girls with the messy bun and all of that but the texture of the hair garnered a, a different response yeah and the thing is I like to believe that they would have done something different I don't know that they would have done that if they understood if they had a real understanding of hair politics in black spaces and with mm -hmm. darker skin bodies, I don't know that they would have done that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they would have opened themselves up to this level of scrutiny because this is H&M. They were already coming off the heels of the, monkey, the young monkey black gate. boy in the monkey sweatshirt. <laughs> right. Yeah, monkey gate. So I, I don't know that they would have, I don't know that they would have done this on top of that if they had known. Right. But, but then yes. Certain people with certain hair textures are allowed to be messy. Like, even when you think about, like, sexy bedheads. Close mm. your eyes and think sexy bedheads. What is the image that comes to mind? Because chances are it's not a black woman with an afro. No. When I think of bedhead, it's sexy not. bedhead, just from the movies and growing up, I think about blonde girl a blonde hair, blue eyes, or, or, or red head, you know, waking up and their hair is a little, dish, you know, disheveled or messy. You, you're right. I, I, yeah, and, I'm and a, it's even considered sexy. Yeah. It's sometimes even considered cute. Yeah. <laughs> and when do you get that sort of thing with black women? You don't. <laughs> you don't. Unless you have Not a certain hair, hair texture. Not unless their hair has already been 
Exactly. Not unless it's already been straightened and it can look similar to what we have already been given a narrative of beauty for. We have not been given a narrative of beauty for darker, for, you know, kinkier textured hair. We have not been given that. Mm-hmm. And when they when they did this, I was like, oh, Lord, I'm like H&M wrong because mm-hmm. they didn't know. They weren't prepared. And they didn't have and anybody in the room. We wrong. Mm-hmm. Clearly. Clearly. They didn't have anybody <laughs> in the room to have that conversation with them. Or a lot of times when we do have people in those spaces, they feel like if they stand up for black people that that's going to make them look bad on in the company. I also think that too, because a lot of times we say we need people in these spaces. We need people in these spaces when it, but when it's just that person, they feel we need a, vocal a, people. In yeah. These yeah. We need vocal. That is the key word vocal people. Cause some people feel like, well, I don't want to take the brunt or I don't want to look like I'm being I'm combative. I don't want to look as being aggressive because we're looking at our we're looking at ourselves through the lens of racism as well of what they gonna think. And that's what I've been teaching mm-hmm. my students at school. Uh, one of my students most recently, we were doing a video at where my where I work um, for Black History Month about voting. And my student in the middle of taping, she wanted me in there with her, and she was like, "Well, I don't want to get too rah rah," and I. I was like, what does that mean? Well, I don't want them to think. I said, they to think. I said, this is our experience. Stop uh, censoring yourself to make them feel good when they go against everything. They they don't care about what they do to you daily that affects you in harmful ways. You're just telling real words. And the things and the policies that they have in place affect you on a daily basis that could kill you. You know, so... We gotta be that right there. <laughs> we gotta be willing to speak up, but moving forward. Um, but there's a risk with speaking up. It so is. I, I like I definitely understand where you're coming from, but I'm just like you know what? That's why I said we need vocal people in these rooms, people that are willing to bear the brunt of whatever the negative feedback or consequences are going to be. Because when black people show up as themselves, there is a risk. Mm-hmm. And the risk is getting fired, going hungry, or dying. Mm. And when the stakes are this high, you know, I'm like, hey, if you gotta, if you gotta co-switch it up, I'm just like, co-switch it with knowledge, mm-hmm. co-switch it with with knowing what you're doing and knowing why you're doing it. But we also need, if not equal, in equal measure, more. We need more Black people that are willing to put themselves on the line to be themselves and to show up as them so that it gives it gives way for other black people to feel like they can also show up mm-hmm. and also speak up but also so that white people recognize that black people are not silent Hello. we're not that we don't just talk among ourselves and in our own community they need to be able to get used to hearing us too mm-hmm. and when we censor ourselves or we silence ourselves they never have to get used to nothing so when you have that black person that does speak up, it's a foreign concept <laughs> and one that is not going to be met with any level of love because they're going to be looking at you sideways like um, the rest of your brethren don't speak and neither should you. Mm. But we need people that are willing to be that person, that black person in that classroom or in that boardroom or in that meeting or in that space mm-hmm. who shows up as them. So, and be willing to take whatever the consequences may be. 
Indeed. So we talked a little bit about uh, colorism, texturism, and now there's uh, something on the horizon. I think we touched a little bit on it, on it which is featureism and lookism. Um, Eurocentric features versus Afrocentric features. And we talked a little bit about it with Lupita, but recently um, there was a tweet made against Tiana Taylor and Ari Lennox about their features when they have what are considered black features and Ari Lennox went on to cry, you know, a cry about it. Um, and then look at them beauty being mixed. How problematic. And my question is how problematic is it to the site for a person to be told their beauty, um, shouldn't or can't, shouldn't be associated with blackness that lessens their beauty. How does it affect the site? Mm. When somebody is fixing, using their mouth to talk mess about what somebody looks like, it has, it can have horrible effects that last for years to come. It would have been better if you just hit me. It'd be better <laughs> if you just punched me. At least that'll, that'll heal a little bit quicker. But when, when we say things with our mouths, you can't take that back. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what you trigger when you say something to someone about what it is that they look like. Mm-hmm. And I like, honestly, I worry about the people that say some of the things out their mouth because I'm just like, well, what happened to you that you're so nasty? Mm-hmm. Who did something to you? Like, what, why haven't you done the work that you need to do in order to make sure that you know how to be kind to people mm-hmm. and to be able to see the beauty in the things and the people around you? But for the person that has to receive these nasty comments, it definitely has an effect on the psyche. This can impact your self-esteem. And mm-hmm. self-esteem can impact what type of relationships you choose to get into, how long you stay in those relationships, how successful those relationships are. It can impact you at work. Mm-hmm. I'm like, self-esteem impacts all areas of your life because you have to be the person to show up. Mm-hmm. So if you're feeling some type of way about you, how does that person show up at work? Are they confident? Do they always act like they know what they're doing? Or are they timid and constantly asking questions to the point where people doubt that they know how to do their job? Mm. There are pieces in there that have to be remembered when we're having these conversations. Like, I think that people think that self-confidence is just just a small thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not a small thing. It impacts your decision-making abilities. So it impacts your finances, it impacts your friendships, your family relationships, romantic relationships. It impacts what you choose to wear in the morning or not wear before you leave your house. It can impact whether or not you can even get out of bed that day. Does it impact how you experience sex? So we talked a little bit about how it affects your your dating life, right? Because of people's preferences and choices and the whole that whole scheme of thing, but how does it affect sex in the act, the act of sex in the context of colorism? Well, it definitely impacts sex, right? So number one, you could be saying yes to having sex with somebody that you don't actually want to have sex with. So we could start there Mm -hmm. because you feel like in order to be like, or like a bull, you have to be willing to give them what it is that they're wanting. So it can impact whether or not you want to have sex. And then what sex acts you even involve yourself in. So, there, I mean, there's a whole wild world of things you can do in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. And there is a whole wild world of things that you may personally not want to be doing. But you're more likely to go ahead with it 
when because you feel some type of way about yourself. You're also less likely to be connected to your body in sex because you think your body and the way you look is ugly. You disassociate it. So that means that you lose your, you can really just lose your orgasm or never experience an ag- orgasm because you're not in your body. You're concerned about the person that's having sex with you, making sure that they enjoy themselves while not really being concerned about your enjoyment, about what feels good or doesn't feel good to you. Mm. So, ain't no orgasms for the people who feel like they're ugly. Mm. It's hard to get, especially when you're not within the context of your skin. When you're outside of your body and you're sort of like, almost like floating above, looking down, trying to see, do you look cute? Do you need the arch back? This is called <laughs> spectatoring. Wow. So, you, you're thinking about what does this person look, what does it look like when they look at me so that I can, so that I can give them pleasure? Mm. You're not worried about receiving pleasure. You're worried about giving it. So you're like, okay, I can wear this thing. It pinches and it hurts and it cuts off circulation to my left leg, but that's okay because it, it makes me look. It makes me look this type of way. Makes me almost sparkle. Oh, I'm gonna do my hair this sort of way. No, they're not gonna touch it, but you know, it's all good. I'm gonna be like this because this looks sexy. And you're worried about the performance of sex. You're not even involved in it no more. So you're not really enjoying yourself. You're disconnected. Wow. Dr. Donna, we, uh, <laughs> I feel like we're going to have to do a part two on this colorism thing because it, it is so deep. The whole spectrum goes into a deep, dark black hole because it is so nuanced. Um, but before we get off the airways, how can we help love the skin we're in and the skin that we see in the mirror every day? I love this question. And for me, the answer is almost simple, but not easy. First, we have to acknowledge that we have a problem. We have to acknowledge that we feel some type of way about the skin that we were born into, whether it's dark, medium, or light. We have to acknowledge that. And we also have to acknowledge how we have, how we feel about other skin tones. Mm -hmm. And then we got to take a look back. What messages did we receive as children? What message, What things did we take in and that we sort of move forward with? We have to look at our here and now. How do we continue to perpetuate these messages in the way that we behave and engage with others? Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, we have to decide what we want. What is the goal in what it is that you want to do? This is part of the reason I wrote Cocoa Butter and Hair Grease, mm-hmm. so that people could have a tool to help them move through these questions to figure out what their values are, what the messages that they've received are, and to ultimately figure out how they are going to move forward because it's work. It is fantastic work. It is necessary work, but it is draining, but it is so much the work that really does need to be done. If we work on ourselves as individuals, this helps in how we get to relate to others, which means that we are helping community while working on the individual. So doing that work is not easy. It's necessary. Like I said, it's why I wrote Cocoa Butter and Hair Grease. It's why I created a a space on Facebook, a community to talk about colorism and texturism stuff Mm -hmm. in a space that does not include white people. Mm Because sometimes we just need a space where just black people can be and have these conversations 
and really hash out our hurt. And we have to be willing to do that work. And sometimes I'm not sure if we're willing. I think that we like to point things out. Mm-hmm. I think that we like to go wah, wah, woo, woo. But when someone asks you to do the real work, to really take that moment to be introspective and reflect, we shy away from it. And I get it. It hurts. Mm-hmm. It's not comfortable. But it's necessary. The growth that we are looking for as individuals and as a community is in the work that we are avoiding. Mm-hmm. We got work to do. We got work to do, and we'll end it on that note. Thank you so much, Dr. Donna, for being a guest on the Tanae Talks podcast with this intimate conversation about colorism. I just want to end it with um, be sure to compliment your your children's skin, educate your children from an early age about colorism to let them know that they are no greater than or less than anyone because of their dark skin. And be sure to teach your children about the rich history of black culture and all of its shades and beauty. Uh, so in true today talks fashion, Dr. Donna, this is your moment to give your shout out to your people. So you can shout out whomever. This is your moment. Shout out to all the people that got me to this point. The people that taught me the people that walked me through things that really helped me out. I really do appreciate the brunt of the work that you have done so that I could be in this position today. Thank you. That's solid. I want to give a shout out to all the beauties out there, whether you have good or bad hair, whether you're dark or you're fair. Go on and swear and see if I care. Good and bad hair. Which I don't think there's any bad hair. But shout out to y'all. Shout out to everyone who's listening today. I hope this conversation um, enlightened you, informed you, and gives you the courage that you need to combat colorism in the in this system that we uh, live in. Thank you, Dr. Donna, for being a guest. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. And we're just going to end it right there. We're, we're going to be doing a part two. And I just got news in. I hate to end this on a bad note, but I just got news that Kobe Bryant passed away. So rest in peace to Kobe oh, Bryant my goodness. and to his uh, family. Yeah. Tonight Talks. We're going to talk about it right here. Yeah. You ready? It's Tonight Talks right here. We're going to talk about it right here.